0: Welcome to the Prolific Author Podcast. Let's face it, readers read fiction to feel emotion and be transported and transformed. In this ongoing digital revolution, where online marketing is always in flux, the only way to create a sustainable author business and live off your royalties is to write transformational stories, market at every stage of the author journey, and cultivate a loyal audience of readers. Fortunately, there's never been more opportunity to make a living as a fiction author. Welcome back to the workshop. I hope everyone's having a great day and that you had fun yesterday. I hope y'all were able to sit down with a calendar and figure out your daily writing habit. Um, Let's see, today's Tuesday and we're going to get started here in just a minute. I'm going to give it just another 20 or 30 seconds for people to trickle on in. Let's see who we got Like I said, we are on day two of the workshop. We are going to talk about um, how to write transformational stories today. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about and geek out about. So I'm super excited. All right. Let's um, take care of a little bit of just orders of business that we need to talk about. I did mention these yesterday, but I'm probably going to mention them every day for various people. Um, If you're Commenting in the comment box, which I hope you will a lot, it helps if you give StreamYard permission to show your name. That's something that will be in the post that you're actually watching right now. It'll just have a little thing you can click on that says give permission. And that's just so that I can see your name. Otherwise, I just see something that says Facebook user and I don't know who is making the comment. Um, you don't have to, it's totally optional, but just know that if I'm uh, calling you a person or something rather than by your name, it's because I can't see your name. Um, also, as I said yesterday, when streamyard shows me the comments i all i usually can't tell whether you're talking to me or talking to someone else so if you are answering someone else's comment um that's just going to show up as a comment for me that you're you know maybe making toward me or on the video so just going to warn you about that in you know upfront if you ask someone else a question and i answer it that's why because i can't tell the difference and i would rather answer someone's question than and and be wrong that they weren't actually talking to me than um have someone not get their question answered, okay? So just just a heads up, just an FYI. And um finally, there's one other thing I wanted to talk about. Oh, um Facebook does this weird thing. I did look in the group yesterday and it a lot of times will show the post that's supposed to hold the live video as blank. I don't know why it does that, but there tend to be two of them. So if for any reason you can't find the live video, just go ahead and scroll down and you should be able to see it. Usually the live stream pops up at the very top of the group, but if for any reason it doesn't for you, just scroll down or look at it and you should be able to find it. Okay. So, um, the next thing we are going to do is I told you that there would be a random gift card drawing. We just literally put names in a hat and, uh, did a drawing from the people who answered and were um doing the homework and you know putting comments in and all of that and the winner is um let's see drum drum roll please Sarah Ellis Piman or Piman I'm sorry I'm not sure how to say your last name but you are the winner of the gift card so um do me a favor and uh email me here I'll put my email on the screen real fast Email me at uh, lkhillbooks at gmail.com, Sarah, and I will get that to you. Okay. So, congratulations on winning the gift card. All right. So, next thing, um, can everybody hear me okay? Can somebody put in the chat whether technically we're doing all right? I think we are, but I'm already getting a few comments here. But just let me know if I can hear you or not. And know that there is about a 10 second delay. So, it takes a little bit, a few seconds for your comments to show up. All right, I think with that, we are gonna get started for today. All right, so welcome to day two, where we're gonna to learn to write transformational stories in order to keep your readers coming back to you again and again and again, even though I always start the workshop out talking about how to get your writing done, because that is for you personally, and you know if you're not getting the words down, then most of the rest of it doesn't matter, even so, Writing really amazing, connecting, emotional, transformational stories is going to be the bedrock of your business. If you can't do that, then you're going to have a really hard time making things work for you. So that is what we're going to talk about today. And let's dive in. Oops, too far. Okay. So this is to connect deeply with your readers and bring them back to your work again and again, as I just said. This is what we're going to cover today. We're going to do a quick quick recap of yesterday because we're going to kind of tie it all together. Um, why we need what I call the human template, that is a story template. We're going to go over my 10 essential plot points, which you may have heard called nine essential plot points before, I'll explain. Then we're going to talk about those six habits of successful authors, which we talked about yesterday, but we're going to kind of um, tie them into the actual writing of the story. And then we're going to talk about plotting versus pantsing, or you might call it outlining versus discovery. Okay, so let's get going. Okay, so yesterday, we talked about how really good stories evoke emotion. They always do. They create greater kindness, greater empathy, and they actually preserve humanity through vicarious experience and emotional connection. Now, those are a lot of really big words, which this is like the one audience that probably doesn't have a problem with that. But the point is that readers live vicariously through the characters, they connect with them emotionally, and learning practicing to, to connect emotionally with other people's emotions is what makes us more compassionate, more humane, more empathetic all of that and so this is the this is the real true value of stories. I mean of course there's other values as well there's entertainment, there's um, adrenaline which is an emotion as well but people really crave escapism and they it's important to understand that they crave it on a subconscious level. So this is something that most of your audience isn't even aware of. Not really. Okay. They just know that they love stories, that they love watching TV or reading books or um, listening to awesome music that has a message. Okay. We crave those stories because we need the hope and the transcendence that the stories bring us. We need to see other people overcoming and solving problems and solving mysteries and, and finding romance and all of these things because you know, when we're in our own problems in life, it's difficult. And stories really help us through those. They help us feel better. They help us know that there's hope for us because this character managed to, you know, be victorious. Um, So without stories, we are not emotionally or psychologically healthy. We actually do need them for our mental health. So we went through all of that yesterday. If you need more details on that or want more details on that, scroll down and watch yesterday's video because we went into a lot more detail. Um, The other thing that we talked about that's important for understanding how to write a great story is that humans really need three things for happiness, or rather there were studies done that showed that people who were genuinely happy and satisfied with their lives had all of these things, okay? So we need to feel alive, we need to feel connected, and we need to have meaningful pursuits. So what does that all mean? Um, We can give our readers two out of three of those things. We can help them feel alive. Through the emotion that we evoke in our stories we can also help them feel connected to these characters and also to each other because people talk about stories they share stories with you know the other people in their lives they um you know get online and get into fandoms and and you know just kind of geek out about what they loved about the story all of that and so we can really give them the feeling of being alive and the connection the meaningful pursuit really applies more to you as the author writing great stories to help people to change their lives to preserve humanity in general is a very very meaningful pursuit. Don't ever let anyone tell you differently and don't ever apologize for being creative and writing these stories because most of the time you don't even know whose life you're changing. Somebody read your story and just never told you how much it impacted them. Or, you know, it could be that even they didn't realize. You know, we we process these things on such a subconscious level that sometimes we don't even know that that story had a really positive impact on us. We just know we read it and we liked it and that's it. But we we you know, this this gets into really Um, I don't want to call it woo-woo, it is scientific, but, you know, minuscule brain interactions that, you know, we're not going to go into here, but even if we don't understand them, they are there, and it is a thing, so it's something to keep in mind. Okay, so I also talked yesterday about the three pillars you need for author success, right? Um, daily writing habit, which we talked about yesterday, you can go back and watch yesterday's video for more information about that transformational stories, which we are going to talk about today, and then marketing naturally and with ease, we're taking tomorrow off, but we'll get into the marketing on Thursday. So we're going to focus on transformational stories, and why it's so important to write them. And, you know, it's really we're going to come at it from two different perspectives. There's what I was just talking about for the sake of helping humanity, bringing them hope, changing people's lives, you know, I honestly believe writing transformational stories can change the world as we know it, but also in terms of helping your author career and how if you can't figure out how to write a transformational story that connects with your readers on a deep level, you're going to have a real hard time making money on your writing, okay? So this is something that is very integral to you personally if you want to be a career author and also to, you know, the service that we're doing to the world by writing these amazing stories. Okay, so I have a little story to tell you. Yesterday I talked about how um in college i in high school actually and into college i was going to be a doctor and and kind of my journey away from that and how i eventually came to writing and it kind of changed my whole world well sometime after that it was probably a semester or maybe a year after that i don't remember exactly how long um the local chapter of the local writing chapter around here i'm in utah is called the league of utah writers and they were having a spring workshop and it was super cheap i think it was like 30 bucks to go to it or something like that. And I also was a student, so I got a discount. And so I was like, yeah, I'm going to go to that. That, You know, see what it is, it might be helpful. Well, author Dan Wells was there speaking. I don't know if any of you know who he is. He's fairly fairly well known. He's a very um, successful author. He writes a lot of uh, dystopian and YA kind of stuff. And um, I met him, and he gave a really great presentation about story structure and plot points. Um, He had kind of a system of points that he used, and it's a little different than mine, but that was my first real, um, uh, what opened my mind to story structure. And I had this kind of lightning strike in my head where I realized that there was a way to write novels that everybody would always connect with so that you almost couldn't get it wrong in a lot of ways if you use the structure. And that sort of just opened the door to all of my research, which I've been doing now for like 10 years on StoryCraft. I mean, it just fascinates me the way that we absorb stories and the way that um, we process things in our brains and um, the way that stories kind of force our brains to work, but in a good way. And all of these things are things that you can and should be tapping into as authors. Okay. So this made me realize that story psychology is a thing and I kind of became obsessed with it. And, um, I started years of reading every craft book I could get my hands on and really testing different things through, you know, critique groups and, and readers and things. And eventually I came up with my own proprietary blend of, um, story points that I use to write every story now that I make. Um, for the record, Dan Wells also gave me some really good advice. At the time, I had only written one full length man- full-length manuscript. Um, it would eventually become my Kremlin's trilogy. But the thing is, I, write, I wrote the whole thing as a single book. And I, was, I kind of did the whole Stephen King thing where I was getting a lot of rejections. I was sending it to... Um, you know, agents and and different publishing companies that were traditional. And I got a lot of rejections. And I I can guarantee the biggest reason that they were rejecting me right off the bat is because it was too long. It was like 200,000 words long. And so when I asked Dan Wells about that for advice, he said, well, you can either self-publish it or you can maybe break it into installments. And that's actually what I ended up doing. I broke it into three installments and it became what is now my Kremlin's trilogy, which is a historical fiction about Russia in the Middle Ages. So I can also say that he gave me some really good advice and it led to the way in which I published those books. And so that was always be grateful to him for that. But moving on. Um, So I created my own uh, system of plot points, which I'm going to get to in just a minute over the next few years based on this. However, first, before we get into that, I want to talk about what exactly is a transformational story. Let's define it. This is how, I mean, transformational story, that's actually my word for it. That's just what I call it. So you're not going to find that in the dictionary or in uh, Publishers Weekly or anything like that, as far as I know. But this is how I define it. It is a story in which the character goes through a deep, dynamic, and thorough transformation, which follows the human template for how human beings change and grow. So it's everything that I've been talking about, about how we absorb stories exactly the same way all the time and there's a specific way in which we absorb them there's a specific um you, you know different twists and turns and landmarks that we look for but we're not doing it consciously okay our brain just kind of does it on its own and that is why we can connect so deeply with certain types of stories or where you know you might have watched uh back in the day they used to call them indie flicks you know that was more something that was put together by an independent filmmaker rather than a big um Studio, and you would watch it and go, well, it was good. The characters were good, and I liked this about it, and I liked that, but, and it's it's probably because it was independent and they didn't have the full story structure there. Okay, so we we can, our brain is looking for that whether we know it or not, and if it doesn't find it, we don't feel satisfaction in that story. And creating satisfaction is really what we're after. Okay, I call it reader satisfaction. If they are satisfied in the story, they will come back to you for more stories. If they're not, they'll be like, eh, not for me, and move on okay? That's what we don't want. We want them to keep coming back to us. And the way to create reader satisfaction is to follow this template, which is um, what I call the human template, okay? Now, the other thing to kind of be aware of is that this template spurs actually three separate transformations. Obviously, there's the character because that's what you're writing. It also transforms the reader. And that's where we get into how you're serving your fellow man by writing these stories. Because they're remember they're living vicariously through these characters. So when the character gets into trouble, they automatically put themselves into the character's shoes, whether they realize they're doing that or not. Okay, they go, Oh, man, what would I do in that position? And then something else happens. Oh, man, this is so tense. What would you do? And then there's, you know, some tragedy and you go, Oh, man, that sucks. Oh, man, that's so sad, you know, And then they see the character come up with a plan. Yes, finally, we have a plan. We're being proactive. You know, they're they're right there in the character's shoes. So if the character transforms, guess what? The person reading it is transforming as well, even if they don't know it. Okay. And maybe it's on a smaller scale, but that is why exactly what I said yesterday. That is why people who read are more empathetic. Okay, because they have actually, oh, what is that quote? I want to say it's C.S. Lewis about how a man who doesn't read only lives one lifetime, but someone who reads lives a thousand lifetimes. Okay, same sort of thing. They're having the experience through that character. So if the character is transforming, I guess I should say, then so is the reader. And you are helping them to become a better person because they are having the same experience as the reader and learning those same lessons. So they're, I mean, because they're not actually living it, it may not be on quite the same um, level as as the, the character's transformation. But if you read a lot of books you might have all these like little mini transformations that overall lead you to be a better person right that, that can only be a good thing so the character transforms the reader transforms and i would argue that the writer you also transform maybe in a smaller way again but if you're constantly looking for transformations and crafting transformations it helps you understand human beings more and it helps you understand our minds and our hearts and the way that we approach the world um what you'll start doing is seeing transformations in the people around you you know you'll start Saying things like, you know, my sister used to act this way, and then this happened to her, and now she's different, and I can see that that changed her. And we might observe that anyway, because you are writers, because you are kind of people watchers and people analyzers. You you might do that anyway, but this will just enhance it, okay? So that is what a transformational story is. Now, the question is, how do we write them? Um, Well, first, it's important to know why we need templates. Now, this is something that I do get a lot of pushback for. Um, especially from pantsers or discovery writers, not everybody likes the term pantser. Okay. But if someone who is kind of against outlining, they say that it squashes their creative muse, they feel like they're being sort of entrapped by the template. So why am I telling you to use it? Well, I do understand this argument. First of all, we have to acknowledge that everybody has a different process. And there are some people this won't work for. However, I'm going to argue that it should work for about 99% of you, even if you're a pantser. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later on. So even if you're thinking that you're a pantser and you're not sure that this is going to be for you, don't put me away yet. I, I, I do have some, um, some things that you, that you might find interesting a little bit later on. Okay, so I do understand where the argument comes from. It, it feels logical to say if you're using a template or you have to adhere to story points, then you're taking away your freedom as an as a writer. And therefore, you're not going to write as well like that just that seems logical in our minds, right? It's actually not. Okay. It's truly not because let me tell you a story to to kind of illustrate why. So years ago, when I was first getting into writing, I met another woman at um, it was at a, at a writer's meeting of some kind. And we kind of hit it off, we became friends. And I found out that she already had Several books published on Amazon. Now, this would have been probably 2012. I mean, when, when Amazon was a brand new thing and people could just kind of pop a book up there, even if it was terribly written, even if it had a terrible cover and, and make money and get downloads, right? So I think her book was 99 cents and I, I both wanted to support her. And I was just excited that somebody I knew already had a book published, you know, because I, I don't think I had any published at this time. So I went and downloaded her book for her. And I can tell you that it was really terribly written. (laughs) I mean, I loved her to death, but um, the story had no focus, okay? It was literally just the character going from one thing to another thing to another thing to another thing, and you couldn't figure out what the point of the story was. I remember that it was a fantasy, and she just kept dropping all these different fantasy elements on us without any cohesion, without any kind of um, summing up or, you know, explaining why they were there in the story. It was just so scattered. And I don't think I even finished it. I really wanted to, and I tried to push through it, but it was giving me a headache trying to read the story because it was just that bad, okay? Having certain rules or certain guidelines that we adhere to actually helps us to be more creative, okay? You have to understand that. For one thing, genre is a really good example of this. If we were just writing any old thing all the time, you know, with a, with a serial killer here and a vampire here and a romance there, author, I mean, uh, readers don't know what to do with that, okay? They want a specific type of story. They're looking for, I would argue, a specific type of transformation, okay? So if you don't adhere to the genre, you're not gonna appeal to any reader at all. Whereas the genre gives you guidelines to what your reader is looking for. And if you stay within those guidelines, you will have a built-in audience for your book. I would also argue that if you could just write any old thing, you had nothing to adhere to, you could just kind of meander through your story and do whatever, that's easier in a lot of ways to, because you can write whatever you want. You're not worried about, you know, tropes or um, being really specific about anything, okay? It's actually harder to stay within a certain set of criteria, such as genre, but still make an awesome story that is um, totally original and grips your reader. Okay. So because it's harder to do that, it actually makes you more creative. It makes you more of a problem solver than you otherwise would have been. So that is why templates are important. I do understand that some people feel like, um, maybe they can't write at first this way. They have to figure out their story first. And again, we're going to, we're going to address that when we talk about plotting and pantsing, but here's the thing. If you keep meandering through your stories, you risk your readers never fully connecting with them. Not not on the level that you want, okay? Which means you'll never have any super fans. So what's the solution? You need to adhere to a template that readers will always, 100% of the time, automatically connect with. And understand, I have several of these templates, okay? It's not just one thing. It's one general flow that encompasses encompasses several different templates you can use. Okay. So there's still a lot of wiggle room within that. There is still a lot of room for pantsing. I I pants a lot of my books and I'll, again, I'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. So, um, this really goes back to serving your readers. Okay. Which is more important sticking to you being free to write whatever you want or serving your readers by writing a story that will actually change them. And if you want them to change and go through the transformation, you have to keep them engaged in the story. If they're putting it down chapter two, they're obviously not gonna get through to the end and they're not gonna have the transformation, okay? So part of this is not just about the transformation, it's about keeping them engaged and keeping them pulling through the story and wanting that transformation. I mean, if you do it right, they're practically salivating for it by the time you get to the climactic moment, okay? That's what we're talking about here, and that's why we need templates. Okay, so we are going to go over the 10 essential plot points. Now, let me give you um, a a couple of uh, little caveats here. First of all, like I said, um, I I teach many levels of this in the academy. Some of them have way fewer than 10 plot points, um, and, and some of it is stuff that you probably will have heard of before because it's very commonly taught in the author space, some of them have more than 10 plot points because they're more detailed than this, so you can fill in more of your story. But this is the one that I commonly teach, and you know I've taught it on my podcast before, um, and it's one that you, know, you can kind of find. However, I used to call them the nine plot points. I have kind of added a plot point, <laughs> and I'm going to tell you where that is. It's really that um, the call to adventure here and the escalation used to all be one plot point. And I eventually over the years started separating them. So it's really not any different to have nine rather or to have 10 rather than nine. It just means that I'm, there was one plot point that I'm now writing is two. That's all. But if you go back to um, previous episodes of my podcast, or I'm actually going to give you a PDF of these, it does say nine. So you'll just have to keep that in mind. In fact, maybe I will do that now so that you don't have to take as many notes. Um, you can get a download, a PDF of this, uh, these plot points. It's at uh, bitly forward slash 10 plot points, and you can just download that. It's a a PDF, but it will say nine, just FYI. Okay, so um, I'll leave that up there for a bit for anybody who wants to uh, copy it down. The 10 plot points are these. The world before, the intro of conflict, the call to adventure, the escalation, or first escalation, you can do one or more, turning point. Um, we, we're going to go through all of these, don't worry, but let's get through all 10 and then escalation number two or more, the climax, the Uber despair, the aha, and the resolution. Okay. So let's go through what each of these are. The world before is the baseline for where the character is when you begin your story. Okay. So this is before the conflict hits. This is just them in their natural home or climate or how their life already is at that point. That's all it is, the world before. And it's important for you to establish what this is because by the time you get to the end of the 10 plot points, they should have changed. They should have been in a different place. And it's actually very helpful to know where they were, like consciously know where they were so that you know where they need to end up and that those two should be mirror opposites. Okay. I'll talk more about that in a minute. Um, Intro to conflict. The intro to the conflict is when they get some sort of new information. This is not actually the conflict affecting them in a huge way. It's just they're getting information that sort of foreshadows the conflict. Okay. So they get this information, they kind of absorb it, but it doesn't change their day-to-day life in a big way. Then you have the call to adventure. This is where they get the big conflict. This is where the, you know, something spurs them to action that changes their world. Okay. So the main difference between the intro of conflict and the call to adventure is action on the character's part. For the intro, they're not acting. They're not, um, doing much with that information, except kind of absorbing it and filing it away for later. But the call to adventure is very, very action oriented. Um, Then there's an escalation. Escalation can be anything that ups the tension. Okay. It can be obviously something bad happening. um, Someone being attacked, someone having to run for their lives, um, you know, finding a body. If you're talking like about a murder mystery, sometimes the escalation can be if you're talking about a romance, you know, maybe finding out something negative about this person that they're, you know, starting to develop feelings for. Okay. So very often it's negative and it's just something that really ratchets up the tension. It can be something that is not negative, that just changes their world. Okay. So it can be, something new that happens that hasn't happened before. It can be meeting someone new who is going to, you know, change them and play into their story. That's just kind of something new that's happening. It can be any of those things. Now, the reason I say escalation one or more is because you want to make sure you have at least one major escalation at this point in the story, but you can have many and most stories have more than one, okay? I would say maybe plan at least three, but that's just, that's just me and it's going to depend on what serves your story. All right, the turning point. The turning point is really, really important because During the first, uh, what is that, four, five, one, two, three, four, four plot points, the character is mostly reacting to things, okay? So there's things in their world coming down and acting upon them, but they're just reacting. So they're just trying to survive, trying to ward this off, trying to figure stuff out, but they're not being very proactive about anything. The turning point is where that all changes. They go from a, a state of reaction to a state of action, in the turning point. Okay. So this is where they make a plan, um, kind of take control of their destiny, say, okay, this is what we're gonna do. I- I'm sick of only reacting now. I'm gonna actually try to move forward and get something done and resolve this, that sort of thing. Okay. That usually comes around the middle of the story. It doesn't have to chronologically. There's plenty of times that it doesn't come until three-quarters of the way through the story or something, but you'll notice in a lot of stories it comes almost dead center. Um, okay. So the next plot point escalation two or more. So after the turning point, you need at least one more major escalation, but you can have many and many stories do. I'm going to go through some examples of stories and these points in just a minute. So don't worry. Um, the escalation, the second one, in my opinion, should be a lot bigger than the first one. Okay. So you have escalations here, escalation one in the first part of the story where they're still reacting and That's all well and good, but the second escalation should be bigger. It should really rock the character's world in some way. This is where a lot of times you get um, people dying, you get tragedy, loss of a mentor, um, losing major battles, losing something they need to gain victory in the end, things like that. It's gotta be a major disappointment. It's really putting a lot of pressure on the character. Um, That's what you need for the second plot point, or I mean, I'm sorry, the second uh, escalation. Okay, then we hit the climax. These next three plot points are all going to happen pretty close together, and they sometimes happen simultaneously, but they're so important to um, the the transformation and to the way that the reader reacts to the ending of your story that I made sure to include them all, because if you're missing any of them, the end of your story is going to fall really, really flat, and obviously we don't want that, okay? So... The climax, as you might imagine, is going to be the main character versus the villain or antagonist. Okay, this is the showdown between the two. However that looks in your story, whatever they've been fighting against the entire story, this is where they need to come face to face and there's a showdown. Um, The uber despair, you will hear this called Dark Night of the Soul. I specifically did not use that because it's almost a cliche in our space, but it's pretty much the same thing. It just means... They have a moment where the character is pretty sure they're not going to win. They're not going to achieve victory. They're not going to uh, beat the villain or the antagonist. OK, this could be a moment when anything from they just think the antagonist is going to win to they think they're going to die to um, they don't think they're going to be able to save the world. They're not going to be able to stop the terrorists. They're not going to be able to solve the mystery. I mean, you know, whatever you whatever you are writing, depending on your genre and story, this is where it happens. They have to have a moment where they're sure they're not going to prevail. The aha is when they realize that they are, but more importantly, they realize what they need in order to prevail. So that's why it's an aha moment. They realize, oh, I can do this and then I'll win, okay? Um, so that's kind of prevailing over the uber despair and finally winning in the climactic moment. And then, of course, the resolution is kind of tying up loose ends and bringing your story to a fitting close for where it's at. And the reason I say that is because if you're writing, say, a series, then obviously you don't have to end the series with each book. You might just bring it to a pretty good closing point for that installment, but you might leave some loose ends that you're going to, you know, um, address in later books as you keep writing. So. Those are your basic nine plot points. Now, I'm sure at this point, if this is the first time you've heard them, you're kind of going, okay, I'm going to have to go over that again. Well, don't worry. It really helps to have um, some examples, which I'm going to give you next. Um, So one thing to keep in mind, this is something I kind of already said, is that the state of affairs at the beginning is the opposite of the state of affairs at the end. Okay, so If you're talking romance, at the beginning, you have a character that is single. At the end, they should have found their significant other. So they're opposites. See what I mean? Um, If you have a murder at the beginning of the story, by the end, they should have solved that murder. Because you're starting with an unsolved murder and a victim, you're ending with justice. Okay? So they should be opposites. Now, those are both really obvious examples. But if you're a little bit unsure of where your story is going, that's helpful to, to actually state for yourself, this is how it begins, this is how it needs to end. And then you can kind of fill in the plot points to get there. Um if you're stumped it really helps to write the ending first, okay? So if that's not the way that you do your writing and that's not your process, that's fine. You do you, but especially if you get stumped and you're a little bit confused, it helps to go to the ending, figure out what the ending is, then go back to the beginning. That's why I have the beginning second, okay? And figure out what the 180 degree opposite of that ending is for your character. Where do you want them to be? And then after that I would um next fill in the turning point, which is when they turn from reaction to action, because that is a major, it's just, that's why I call it the turning point. It's a major turn in the story. Okay. The entire feel of the story is going to shift from reaction at first, where the the character feels like they're floundering and um, they don't know what to do. And like, it's really frustrating for them to very action-oriented. They're going to take control. They're going to be empowered. Okay. So the turning point is important. And then you can fill in the different escalations and things from there. Okay. So if you get stumped, that's, that's a really good way to do it. Um, all right. So let's do some, um, examples. I tried to pick mostly films that I think everybody has seen, um, because more people have seen films than have read books. And these are pretty common and people are very familiar with them. All right, so if we were going to be planning The Lion King, this is how the plot points would kind of uh, lay out. And keep in mind that I've seen people do plot points where I've disagreed with what their like second escalation was. I was like, Nah, that's not the second escalation. You know, this is over here, and that's perfectly fine because there's more than one escalation. Especially, you can kind of see it different ways, and that's totally fine. But as long as there's some sort of escalation there, you know, something to fulfill the plot point, it can be somewhat fluid, and you don't have to be too picky about it. Okay, so their world before um, is that Simba is happy in his kingdom. He's gonna be king. He's prince. He's going along. He's happy. The intro of the conflict really is when we learn that Scar wants the throne. Okay. Scar has probably wanted the throne for a long time. And that doesn't really change anything from an action standpoint. We just know that he does. And that's kind of a signal to the audience of, you know, a a forthcoming conflict. It's almost like a foreshadowing. So you could, you know, do one of those like old timey stage directions, like ominous music signaling trouble ahead. You know, that's kind of what the intro is. Um, The real call to action is when Mufasa is killed because that changes everything. It changes Simba's world and he runs away and actually goes to a new place. Now we have um, a lot of stuff that happens in the interim, but the real escalation that really ratchets things up in the story is when Nala shows up, which is years later, because that makes him, she kind of holds him accountable for what happened and starts kind of pressuring him to go back. The real turning point is when Simba actually decides to go home and confront Scar. Now, I'm not sure of the timestamp in this, but I think in The Lion King that this happens more than halfway through um, the film. I'm not positive about that, so don't quote me on it. But it just, there's a lot of things that happen first, and then the battle at the end is a little bit shorter. Okay, but you can see why that's different. He goes from saying, um, I can't control this, there's nothing I can do about it, this is just life. And then he suddenly decides that he's going to go back and do something about it. So that's a, a change from reaction to action. Um, the second escalation, I just wrote the war, or the war begins, the war is fought. There's a lot of little escalations in this. Um, everybody he fights, everything that happens, you know, when Scar realizes he's there, you could come up with a lot of them. So I just kind of lump them all together in the war for this particular example. The climax, of course, is when Simba actually fights with Scar. Okay, that was the, that was the, um, Good versus evil that was set up, set up from the very beginning. And so that is where the climactic moment would be. We have an Uber Despair where um, Simba gets kind of pushed off the side of a cliff and it looks like he's going to die. Scar is going to kill him exactly like he did Muf- Mufasa. So that's the Uber Despair. You can see that there's a moment when it looks like they're not going to win and Scar is going to win again. Um, but the Aha is when Simba learns from Scar that Scar killed his father. And that gives him sort of an anger that gives him strength and he's able to overcome Scar at that point. And then they that helps them win the war. And so the resolution is that Scar and the hyenas are defeated and Simba takes his rightful place as king. Okay, so you probably noticed while I was going through that that we're missing a lot of chunks of that story. It is by no means all in there, okay? There was nothing about Timon and Pumbaa. There was nothing about, um, like, the romance between uh, Simba and Nala. There was nothing about his birth at the beginning Um, certainly we don't have the songs in there, right? But the point is, this is just a skeletal structure, okay? This is to make sure that you have everything that will grip a reader and pull them through your narrative. But there's a lot more detail to be had, which is why I say you can do more than one escalation and you probably should, okay? There can be a lot of twists and turns in your story that you don't necessarily have to account for. So it's not like you can only have the nine events that adhere to these story points and nothing else. No, not at all. Most, Most Really good stories have way more than this. So just just keep that in mind. This is just the structure and it does need to be fleshed out. All right, let's do another one. Star Wars, A New Hope. So this is uh, episode four, first video that came out, all that. The world before the baseline is Luke is a young farm boy living with his aunt and uncle. That's it. That's his world. That's his life before the conflict hits. Um, the intro is the droids and Obi-Wan. Now it is important to to point out that in this movie, we actually had something before we saw Luke, which was the battle in space, but we're kind of doing his, um, journey, his narrative. So for him, the droids, it it changed his world a little bit. Not, I mean, he, you can tell that his uncle bought and sold droids all the time. So it wasn't really anything new, but especially because R2 ran away, which led to him, um, meeting Obi-Wan, it did change things a little bit for him. But even after meeting Obi-Wan, obi wan flat out asked him to come with him and Luke said no. He was still planning to go back to the farm, back to his aunt and uncle. This didn't change his world in a huge way. Um, then the real call to adventure, which you know kicks everything off, starts him on his adventure, is that his aunt and uncle are killed and he leaves the planet with Obi-Wan, okay? Very often the call to adventure, they're leaving the home that they have known for a long time, they're actually physically leaving. That doesn't have to be the case, but it often is. And if it's not um, the case, Physically, tangibly, a lot of times it's the case, you know, emotionally or psychologically, so just something to keep in mind. Okay, um, so again, lots of escalations that you could point to, but the big one I think is when they are taken captive on Vader's ship, they get, you know, sucked in with the uh, uh, tractor beam, I'm going to move that so you guys can see this better. Um, The turning point is when they go to rescue Princess Leia. There's a few reasons this is the turning point. First of all, this is the very first time we see Luke actually take the initiative, okay? Before that, he was doing what Obi-Wan said. He was getting along with Han, but he wasn't really being super proactive about things. This is the first time he took control of the narrative and said, no, we are doing this. And also, because we've all seen that and all the subsequent films, we know that Princess Leia becomes super important. So, you know, that's going to be a big turn when they finally get a hold of her. Um okay escalation 2 Obi-Wan dies. Now remember I said escalation 2 should be bigger than escalation 1 in the first part of the story. So often you see tragedy. Doesn't have to be that, but very often it is. So there's a lot of other escalations that happen in the you know this part of the story after um they find Leia. I mean just just every battle that they have to fight, fighting the stormtroopers, running around the trash compactor, all of those could be escalations. But the big one that's really going to grip the the audience and make them feel all the feels, right, is the death of Obi-Wan. Um, the climax, of course, is Luke versus the Death Star trying to blow it up. We have a moment of uber despair. And there's actually kind of, it's kind of a double-edged moment because Luke gets to the point where he's the last fighter. Okay, so this is despairing because it's now all on his shoulders. All of his buddies have Kind of been killed. um, And, you know, is he actually going to be able to do this? The second moment of Uber Despair, Luke is actually unaware of, but the audience is because we see, excuse me, we see Vader kind of get him in his sights, you know, like he's going to blow him up. So from the audience's point of view, they're going, oh no, watch out, Luke, you know, so Uber Despair. The aha is turning off his targeting computer. Um, The main reason for that is because, and I'm going to, I talk about this really more in terms of his internal transformation, but it's sort of like he realizes that if he wants to be successful, he has to trust the force and not the machine. So he turns it off. Um, and then we also have hand coming in to save the day. And I say flick, cause he kind of, you know, flicks <laughs> Vader's ship out into the, into space. And so that Vader can't blow Luke up. And then, Luke, you know, of course, delivers the uh, the final blow and blows up the Death Star. So the resolution is that they do blow up the Death Star, they do save the rebellion, and they receive medals, okay? So you can see that all of these plot points you can find in major stories, and the reason that those stories connected with us so much, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of reasons. It's it's a cool world, it's space, it's, it's got really great characters, all of those are super important and all of those play into the connection, but plot-wise, we need to see this progression if we want to connect with the story as an audience member. So as a writer, you need to make sure that you are um, putting them into your stories because it's what draws the audience through your narrative, okay? I believe I have one more example. Yes, Pride and Prejudice. I wanted to do one that was not only romance, but specifically not super action oriented, okay? So the world before, Lizzie is happy with her family, but very specifically, she believes she's probably not gonna ever get married. That's important because we know this is a romance and we know how it ends, right? Um, The introduction or the intro to the conflict, I should say. A rich bachelor, Bingley, has moved into the neighborhood and is single. Once again, that doesn't change their world in a huge way just to know that. Of course, their mother is instantly plotting and scheming, but it's not going to change Elizabeth's world because she's not planning to marry him. And, you know, just the information alone doesn't do anything. Um, the real CTA is when they find out that he's throwing a ball and they go to the ball. That changes Elizabeth's world because that's where she meets Darcy, okay? So you can see how that would be a call to adventure. Now, of course, she instantly hates him, but it, still, he's suddenly on her radar, okay? He's part of her world and thus kicks off the adventure that will lead to the romance. So that's why that's the CTA. For the escalation, um, I didn't state just one, but I put Lizzie finds many reasons to hate Darcy. This is what I mean when I say an escalation can be anything. It doesn't have to be someone running for their lives or um, fighting in a battle or, you know, the black riders chasing Frodo. I mean, it can be that for those genres, but you can find these in any genre. The, these, this, this template works for any genre that you might write. And for something that's less action oriented, um, it's often going to be in terms of new information or, you know, it's still something negative that's affecting her. So she first hates him because she hears what he says about her at the ball. Um, But then also she sees him being snooty in other ways. And she also meets Wickham who tells her a terrible story about him, which she believes. So these are all escalations that happen in the story that just make it worse and make her hate him more and make us think, okay, that romance is never going to work out. Um, The turning point where she goes from reaction to action is actually when Darcy tells her the truth about what happened with Wickham, which I also probably should have put in there that he proposes to her because that's all kind of part of the same thing. Um, The reason is because at that point, she actively starts trying to figure out what the truth is. Before that, she was just believing everything she was told and believing what she saw, which was often very tainted by what was going on. But at this point, she actually starts checking into this and trying to figure it out, right? So that is why she goes from reaction to action there and the, the feel of the story starts to shift. Um, the second escalation, again, you could, you could look at many, many different things that happen, but the main one is that Lydia um, has an affair and runs away, which is a big deal um, for, in a very literal way for Elizabeth, because it, it throws her family into um, this conspiracy, or it's not really a conspiracy, scandal, there's the word I'm looking for, into scandal, and um, it means that they're going to be looked down on, and that their, their lives may change a lot, so that's, that's the second escalation. Um, The climactic moment that I pinned down was when Darcy and Elizabeth talk after Lydia's wedding, because at this point, they're, you know, you're kind of trying to, they're actually coming together and saying, are we going to do this? Is this going to work? Do we both still have the feelings? So Pride and Prejudice is interesting. And I think a lot of romances, you could really, you know, geek out trying to analyze romances in this way. Often the love interest is also the antagonist in a lot of ways, Um, because especially for Elizabeth, it's about her coming around to realize he's not the bad guy she thinks he is. Now, another way that you could do this if you wanted to to look at the story a different way is you could make Wickham the antagonist and kind of do it from a point of view of Wickham. And that might be a little bit more plot based, you know, but either way, you can you'll be able to find all the plot points. You could even do it from a point of view of Lydia's story and you would still find all the plot points, but they would be a little bit a little bit different. Um, so the Uber despair is Lizzie assuming there is no hope for her and Darcy because at this point she has developed feelings for him. Um, I often, when I'm analyzing the story, even put in, um, oh, the rich lady whose name I'm totally blanking on, lady, uh, anyway, Darcy's aunt coming in the middle of the night to her house to talk to her because at that point, Lizzie really thinks that there is no hope. She finds out Darcy is engaged to someone else. So, I mean, you could you can see that there's a lot of different things that would fulfill the escalations and the over despair, um, but as long as it's there, you can have more than one to ratchet up the tension. But the aha moment when she's talking to Darcy is when he tells her he still has feelings for her, still wants to marry her, and the resolution, uh, Jane Austen loves double weddings, so we have a double wedding. Um, Now, something I want to point out is that there's a lot of different storylines going on in Pride and Prejudice. Like, I've already named a few of them. You could do it from Wickham's point of view, from Lydia's point of view. What about Jane and Bingley? That's a whole other romance. And I promise the nine plot points are there, too. Um, So in any given story, you can use this template to figure out each character's story if you want. And that's actually what I do. I favor writing really complicated stories with an ensemble of characters and... um, you know some of them are so minor they don't need their own arc so obviously you're going to have to make a judgment call on that but any character that's going to have what i call screen time which means we get something from their point of view and you know going to be on the page a lot and have a lot of interaction with the story i basically give them their own arc and i do these 10 plot points for every single character if there's something happening plot wise in the story that isn't necessarily about a character like um you know some sort of information being revealed or um I don't know, maybe it's a weather thing that's changing over time. I can even use this for that. And (laughs) another thing I use it for sometimes are conversations. I actually call them uh, transformational arguments, and you'll learn about them in the academy. Um, If I want to have a really passionate conversation between two people, like, like to where they're almost yelling at each other, or there's really important information that needs to be revealed in that conversation. I will actually use the 10 plot points to guide the conversation because all that does is take the conversation from, okay, they've started talking and then the tension ratchets up and up and up and up and up until the big reveal. So this works for a lot of different aspects of your story. If you ever reach a point where you're going, I don't know what's going to happen in the scene use the the 10 plot points to write your scene. You can use it on a scene level. If you're like, this has to be an important conversation. I want it to be really changing and encompassing for the characters. Use the 10 plot points to write that conversation. Okay. You don't have to adhere to them hundred percent. You got to do what works for you, but it really helps to guide. And again, ratchet up the tension, which is what pulls the reader through the story. And It may even sound a little bit simplistic, but guys, that is why readers come back to stories. And and once again, you're not going to see it in the reviews. You're not going to see, wow, yeah, they kept the pacing and pulled me through by using the 10 plus. No, they're never going to say that in a review. Okay. But all they will know is that it kept their attention and they couldn't stop reading it. This is what makes them not be able to stop reading it. Okay. This is, this is it right here. Okay. So um, this is kind of what I said before: um, fluidity and reversal. There's a little bit of fluidity because you can have different points in different places. Um, I I try to stick pretty chronologically to it, but I've certainly found other, whether it's films or books that um, follow this that that might move the plot points around a little bit, and and they can pull it off just fine. So you know you can kind of play with that a little bit. Always make sure that the beginning and the end mirror one another, but they're kind of opposites. So like I said. Um, Well, let's use a different. At the beginning, Luke Skywalker is a farm boy. He's certainly not a Jedi. Um, He's looking for adventure and he feels like his life's a little bit mundane. By the end, boy, oh boy, he's he had that adventure and he's on his way to becoming a Jedi. He's no longer on that planet. He's you you see what I mean? Like they're just opposites. You need to figure out where they where you want them to be at the end. And that should be the opposite of the beginning. Now we're going to talk just really quickly about horror and tragedy, because neither of those have particularly happy endings. And you might wonder how to do this if you're not going for that happy ending where you have the hero have a positive transformation. Well, let's check it out. We're going to look at Psycho really fast, which is a horror flick that most people are familiar with. Once again, when I was going through this, there's about seven different ways you could do this, depending on which character you're focusing on. But I tried to focus on Norman Bates. And this is also focusing on him from the audience's perspective. So at the beginning, when the audience meets him, what they're seeing is he's a nice guy who runs a hotel. The introduction to conflict is that Marion Crane shows up. It's Janet Lee's character. And that's because she's just another guest. It doesn't really change much of anything. No big deal. The CTA is that Marion is planning to go back the next day. Um which is gonna change things, right? That She doesn't really get to embark on the journey because of what happens, but it's about to change. Um, the, the escalation then is that Marion is murdered and Norman covers it up. Like I said, you could you could even move these around a little bit and say that the CTA is that um, Marion is murdered and then maybe Norman covering it up is the escalation because we know that's probably wasn't the best thing to, for him to be doing and we kind of start to doubt whether he's a good guy or not. Um, The turning point is when Sam, Lila and Arbogast show up asking questions. This really starts to put a lot of pressure on Norman and the the feel of the film really changes because people are being proactive and trying to figure out what happened to Marianne. Escalation number two I put down is Arbogast being murdered. To to the characters, he just disappears, but it's because at this point to the audience, it still seems like Norman's mother is the one that killed him. So more people being killed. The climactic moment is when Sam and Lila go to the motel and start snooping around looking for answers. the Uber despair, where it looks like things are not going to go well. Sam is struck on the head and passes out. And Lila is snooping around in the cellar and it looks like she's going to be found and killed. But the aha moment comes when Norman actually attacks her with a knife and we see that he's dressed in his mother's clothing, but Sam shows up to subdue him. So, um, specifically, that Sam shows up. So, we're, you know, we're kind of thinking, oh no, she's going to get killed. But then Sam gets there and kind of saves the day. And the resolution is that Norman has been revealed as insane. So, you see that that's not a positive character transformation it's not like him becoming a hero or anything but you can still use the nine plot points you just have to know what your um what your story is pointed at if you will if if the ending this is why it's important to know the ending is going to be that he's revealed as insane and then at the beginning he needs to seem like a nice normal guy and then you can use all of these, these plot points to slowly move you toward the transformation from normal guy into insane psycho okay so that's kind of how you would do it if you're writing um, you can do the same thing with with villains if you have someone who's not a villain at the beginning but is revealed a villain by the end. I promise you, if you go and watch um, episodes one through three of Star Wars, no matter what you thought of them, you can find these plot points because they started with Anakin as being a nice guy, normal guy, he's a Jedi even, and then slowly transforming into the the villain of Vader. They, they do follow all of these. All right, Titanic. I decided to use this one as the... Um, tragedy. There's probably better tragedies you could use, but again, I wanted to get something that most people are familiar with. So World Before, Rose is on the Titanic, but she's unhappy in love. Um, the intro, and I guess I'm kind of doing these from a sort of from Rose's perspective, but also in terms of the romance, we have Jack staring at Rose. And the reason I call that an intro is because certainly that doesn't change anything for either one of them. He's not thinking he'll ever necessarily have an interaction with her and she certainly didn't give him the sign of day but it also sort of signals to the audience that something's there and that there's probably going to be a romance between these two at some point um the the real call to adventure is when rose tries to commit suicide and jack saves her because that's how they meet and it sort of kicks everything off the escalation again you could come up with a lot of these but it's just basically them getting to know one another in various ways and she tells him how unhappy she is Um, The turning point is when they embark on the romantic affair, because that does change everything. And they're being proactive about the relationship and deciding that they don't care about the the social class system. The escalation, of course, is when the ship hits the iceberg, which makes things a lot harder. The climax is, of course, trying to stay alive and on board the ship as long as possible. The uber despair is actually when Jack dies, because for Rose, that's when she's the most despairing and not sure that she's going to be able to get out of the situation alive. But a boat returns for her and she remembers everything Jack has said and you know manages to signal the boat. So the resolution is that the Titanic sinks, but Rose has learned to be happy. Okay, So you can see that even if you have a really sad ending, if you're writing a tragedy, um, you can still use the plot points to get there. And if you're doing um, a transformation, especially an inner transformation, which we're not actually gonna talk about today, um, you just need to make sure it gets done before the end. That's all. So just to give you an idea that you can, you can do this with any genre, with any type of story you're writing, with any type of ending, with any type of character, it's always possible to, to use these just to guide your story and make sure that you're pulling the reader through the narrative. And that's important because obviously we don't want them to put down the book. Okay. So um, before we go on, let me grab some water and tell me what you guys think about this. What is your biggest takeaway from it? Um, let's see. Anybody, anybody? We don't have as many people on today as we had yesterday. Can you see that this is a way to pull your reader through the narrative so that they don't get lost in the story, don't get bored? It's kind of just like ratcheting up the tension step by step, one after another, after another, after another, right? Okay, so with that in mind, Let's talk about why, just really briefly, because it's important for you to know why this works so that you can get behind it. If you don't know why it works, you're more likely to dismiss it, and I don't want you doing that, okay? So why do readers connect with this so strongly beyond what I've already said? Well, let me tell you a story to illustrate why. Um, This is something that actually just happened very recently to me and to my family. Um, On New Year's Eve, Everything was going great. I I worked a little bit, and then I was planning to go to a New Year's Eve party. And this was just two months ago, not even two months ago, a month and a half ago, um, when we turned over from 2021 to 2022. I was planning to go to a New Year's Eve party at my sister's house, and but it was in the morning. And my dad uh, told me that he wanted to soak his feet in an Epsom salt bath and asked me if I had any Epsom salt. And so I said, "Yeah," and I took it up to him. And I um, saw him filling up a little tub so that he could give himself a foot bath. Um, then I came back down to work. And then um, I guess I should explain that I live in the basement apartment of my dad's house. That's why <laughs> I can do that. Um, he he and my stepmom live upstairs and I live in the basement. So um, then I got a text from my stepmom. She was just upstairs and said, your dad has burned his feet really badly and I might have to take him to the doctor. And as it turned out, he has um, what's called neuropathy on his feet has for years. And what that means is it has to do with diabetes and he doesn't really feel his feet like at all. He doesn't feel sensations in his feet. And he's, he's said that forever. Oh, I haven't felt my feet in years, you know, and it's just because of his neuropathy. Well, because of that, he didn't realize how hot the water was. And so he stuck his feet in it and didn't realize it was burning him. So then, um, they decided to take him into his doctor and, uh, you know, Like I said, it was actually good that he had neuropathy because he wasn't in pain, but they could just tell that his feet were burned. He had uh, skin that was coming off and they knew he needed to be seen. So um, he went first to the doctor and then they sent him to the ER and then the ER sent him down to the uh, burn unit in Salt Lake, which is a little ways away. Um, And they knew that he was going to have to stay there. I mean, you know, because you could tell they were burns because of the way they were acting. Not only did it look red and everything, but they were oozing. And so they were going to have to keep him there and then do some surgeries to see, you know, how bad the burns were and um, what they could do to fix it. So they uh, went into the first surgery probably a week later. And unfortunately, what we learned was that they were a lot worse than the doctors thought. He was burned almost all the way down to the bone. Originally, they had been planning to do some scaffolding, which just means building up the tissue again, you know, the stuff that had been burned away. But with it being that bad, they weren't sure that that would even work, that they would be able to do that. Um, So we got the news that he might not be able to keep his feet. He might have to have them amputated. But they needed to do one more surgery to be sure and to make an actual decision on that. so we came to the day of the surgery and you know we weren't really sure what was going to happen, but we got the unfortunate news that he was not going to be able to keep either of his feet. He was going to need them amputated. Um, my main worry in all of that was my dad's state of mind. I'm somebody who very much, maybe this is the writer in me, Uh, empathizes with other people so if he was upset about that then i was going to be upset about that if he was okay with that then i was going to be okay with that and he was very okay with that he he was probably more upbeat about it than anyone else in the family you know we had other family members his other kids his siblings that were having a really hard time with it but he was fine and so as soon as i learned that that he was fine then i was fine and we just kind of moved into this okay let's move forward and you know it's going to be sort of a new living situation a new reality for us but let's just be solution oriented and that's where we're at he's doing really great He's home now and, uh, you know, he's going to get prosthetics and, you know, everything's fine. So why did I tell you that story? Because the way that I told you that story, every part of it was true. There was no part of it that I made up or that I um, switched the order of or anything like that. But every part of that story hit the 10 plot points that I just told you. Okay. Um, The world before I told you that it was New Year's Eve. Everything was great. I was planning to go to a party. The intro of Conflict is him telling me he wants to soak his feet and me taking him Epsom salt. Um, You know, at the time, of course, I wasn't in a reader mode thinking something's about to happen. No, but um, if I'm telling the story to somebody, then they probably might be because readers know how to read stories and they know that something's about to happen. Okay. Of course, the uh, actual call to adventure is him burning his feet and me learning that he had burned his feet. Um, The escalation was him literally escalating from doctor to ER to burn unit, right? Um, The turning point was when they did the first surgery and realized that he was burned a lot worse than they thought. Because at that point, they were just sort of, they were reacting in the sense that they were treating it and thinking that he would heal and it would be okay. And as soon as they realized that it was a lot worse than they thought, they kind of turned over into, okay, we might have to kind of have a different plan about this. Okay, we might have to be a little more proactive going forward in your treatment, even to the point of maybe cutting off your feet. Um, then the, so the escalation was learning that he might not keep his feet after all the climax would have been the surgery because we didn't know going in what the outcome would be. And, um, the Uber despair in that case would be him not keeping his feet, especially because so many people in the family had such a hard time with it. And even though he didn't have a terribly hard time with it, it's still a moment of despair for people who were involved. Um, but like I said, as long as he's okay with it. I'm okay with it. And he was really upbeat and okay with it. So that's your moment of, aha, it's okay. We can do this. He's going to be fine. We can move forward. And the resolution is there's a new reality there. So it's different than what what it was at the beginning of the story when everything was fine and he was fine and had his his real feet. Um, Now he doesn't have them anymore. So that's the opposite. But we're going to move forward with this new reality. Okay, guys, that's a true story. And it hit all of those plot points. I want you to really think about that and let that sink in this is how human beings experience the world and it is specifically how we experience the world when we're having a trial or having a hard time with something learning something new something's gone wrong having conflict having drama in our lives um, tragedy in our lives something to overcome this is what the human experience is okay so this is why we tell stories this way and this is why we absorb stories this way it's important for you to understand that It's not, I'm not telling you to use these templates in order to tell you what to do or how to write. I'm telling you to use these templates because your audience will eat your stories up if you do. You can't go wrong with your story structure if you adhere to this because the audience, from an experiential standpoint, they get it. They already get it. Okay. So you don't have to worry about them connecting to your story. This is why I say all the time write your story in a way that you can be absolutely certain they will connect with that. You're not guessing because they, you're telling it in a way that human beings experience the world. So I was going to go over these just a little bit. I kind of already did that with my story. Um, the world before, we always have to have a baseline to start. I've kind of already gone over this, right? Um, so that it's the opposite in the end and we can see the the transformation, but the change maybe might be a little bit, you can see the way that things have flip-flopped for them. They have a new reality at the end, a new um way of looking at the world okay but it, but remember that our brains pick up on patterns it looks for stuff like that so if you don't establish the baseline the world before we have nothing to compare it to right so it's it's much more powerful for the reader if you establish the baseline and then the opposite at the end the intro of conflict again because a lot of times we get news or new information and we don't understand how it's going to impact us yet because how could we possibly know um so there's something there but of course when a reader is reading your book they're reading it from the mind of a reader who knows something's about to happen so they're absorbing this information and even if they don't think it consciously subconsciously they're going okay they're telling me that for a reason there's there's something there okay so they're picking up on that and already experiencing your story through that the call to adventure this is pretty obvious this is the conflict this is the thing that changes the character's world that's why we need that the escalation okay we we never as human beings go from trial to overcoming trial in the blink of an eye it just doesn't work that way there are always escalations, things that get worse, things ratchet up. Um, It's like when we say, when when it rains, it pours, you know, when you're having a bad day, everything goes wrong. This is where this comes from. This is just the way life is. You know, we get escalations in our lives. The turning point is when we finally start to deal with the problem. Now, this can have a million different faces depending on what you're talking about and what trial you're going through. This could be the moment when we stop being in denial about what's happening and start to accept it. This can be, you know, like I said, when we stop just being acted upon and actually create a plan for how we're going to go forward. Um, This can be when we have gotten all the information and now we need to decide how to um, put that information to good use. You know what I mean? Anything like that. This is why the turning point is important. And the reader, again, subconsciously recognizes the shift because they've been there a thousand times in their lives. They recognize that. Um, escalation number two, same as the one, you know, things get worse, things go bad, you know, things that we didn't unforeseen, uh, circumstances arise, things like that. And of course the climax is sort of the, the peak moment of any particular trial that we have. There's always going to be a peak moment. We usually can't identify it when we're kind of in the midst of it, but it's always there. And then we see from there, okay, we go downhill. So the peak moment was realizing that he was going to need those amputations, accepting it and then going, okay. Now we can move forward. Right. So people understand that they've had those peak moments, too, where they go from the problem getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then finally, things start to get a little better. That's like what we would call falling action. Right. In that typical uh, story curve we all always see. Um, And of course, there's moments when we're not when we have despair. We're not sure we're going to be able to get through this, whether it's physically or emotionally. And, you know, Everyone has had those moments of despair in their life where things just seem really hard, but eventually we can kind of move out of them. Um, In real life, we might not always have an aha moment in the sense that it's not like instant and, okay, this is how I deal with this, but we eventually reach a point where we realize that we can, even if it's a little bit more slow than that. So, (coughs) excuse me. In a lot of ways, the aha is sort of sped up in a story, but that's because we have The climactic moment all is one in that we're telling a story that can't, you know, go on for weeks or months or anything like that. And then, of course, there's the resolution, which is us going on with life. Things have changed for us, but we know we can move forward in our new reality now. And like I said, this is why it's important to understand that this is the human template. This is why I call it that, because this is how human beings experience their world on a day to day basis. If you're telling a story that jumps all over the place, that doesn't have climbing action, that doesn't have a turning point, that doesn't have escalations, that doesn't have the character learning and growing somehow, the audience gets bored because they can't relate to it. Okay? Keep that in mind. All right. Um, This is not, as I said, kind of near the beginning, this is not the only template that I teach. I have sort of a snowflake method thing going on, um, just in a general sense, where we start small and get more detailed. So, um, for example, you know, I, I also said I teach things that you've probably heard of before, such as premise statement. So in terms of plot, I teach premise statement. I do teach the four-act structure. Then comes the 10 plot points, because they're more detailed. And then I also have a detailed external template um, so that you can fill in even more if you need it. They're just suggestions for what to come between the 10 plot points if you need that. You certainly don't need to use them all. Um, but I also have these types of templates for world and character building. Those are both important. Um, for the internal transformation, just like the, this is what I've shown you here is for the plot, which is the external, the actual events of the story. And as you can see, I have the the four parts there, the premise, four acts, 10 plot points, detailed external. I have a very similar structure for the internal, but it's different. It's not the exact same thing. Um, the internal is, it has different plot points and different things that happen because it doesn't necessarily include, um, what's actually happening externally in the plot, which is, I know that sounds a little bit counterintuitive, but you would just have to go through it to see it. Um, And then, of course, character and world building. But all of them revolve around um, that human template and how people relate to the world, to the characters, to the internal, and to the external. Okay, this is – and then I I also show you how to weave them all together for a really, truly – connecting an emotional story. And when I say emotional, I'm always afraid to call it that because I think especially you guys who are not as big on the emotions might think that I'm saying every story has to be like a sob story, but it's not. Adrenaline can be an emotion, you know, excitement over, you know, watching the terrorist get his butt kicked. That's an emotion. Okay. So you have to be creating some sort of emotion, but it doesn't have to be sappy emotion. It can be any kind of emotion that fits into your genre. All right. So questions. Let's see. Hey, Sarah. Um, how would you apply this to a multi-book story like a trilogy? Would you have all these plot points in each of the books as well as overall? Wonderful question. Um, I I do both. I do do both. So if I'm planning a series, which I almost always do, <laughs> I will do this in a very general way for the entire length of the series. Um, then you can decide how you want to chop those up into different installments and books. However, it's also important to do them for each individual book, each individual installment. So. Probably the best example of this is going to be Harry Potter. Um, We have the overarching arc of Harry and Voldemort and the war against Voldemort. But that does not end in any particular book. That you know, goes through the entire series. However, each book does have its own little, um, conflict and it's, you know, Rowling makes it really easy for us because it's in the title. The first one is the Sorcerer's Stone. The second one is the Chamber of Secrets. Third one is the Prisoner of Azkaban. So you can find these plot points for, if you go through, and most of us are pretty familiar with Harry Potter, you can find them for each individual book. You can also find them for the overarching conflict for Voldemort that goes through all the books. And I do have, um, modules that teach that inside the academy but yeah I would I would do both and to some extent you do have to do what fits your story so you certainly don't have to have like you don't have to be really rigid about it you don't have to have one book for each plot point or um I don't know like how would you do that the opposite way like have only one book for each plot point you can have multiple books that would be contained in um So, so you know what, let's go through it for Harry Potter so you can kind of see it. If you're talking about the entire series, we know that at the beginning, Harry is not a wizard, he doesn't know magic, and Voldemort is out there running amok somewhere. By the end, that will all have changed. Harry's a wizard and he's going to overcome Voldemort, okay? Even if you just knew that about the beginning and ending of your series, um, you're you're at least getting started and everything that you write in your book is going to point you toward that ending, okay? This is, it's about the focus of your book a lot of times when I was talking before about your book meandering and going this way and that way, there's no focus there. You need to have these as a focus. Um, so then you would plan your turning point for Harry Potter. What is the turning point? I would say it's probably the end of book four, because that's when Voldemort actually comes back. And you can see that Harry wasn't doing anything particularly um, proactive in trying to get rid of Voldemort because it wasn't necessary. Voldemort hadn't, you know, returned yet. But when he does return, that changes the whole feel of the story. It goes from maybe he'll return someday to, okay, he's back, we have a war to fight. So you can see that that would be the turning point. But the books in between, like books two and three, those could just both count as escalations. You know, we're learning more, he's learning more magic, he's learning more about the past, about what happened, about who he is, about what he is. Um, And then when you get into books... Five and six, there's some real tragedies that happen there. We're losing beloved characters. We're having some minor battles that are still a big deal and are changing things. So you can see that you can, the way that it progresses over the arc of the entire series does encapsulate this template. Um, but I can promise you that if you go through each individual book, you will also have those for each, each individual book installment and possibly even each character in each installment, you know, just depending on how granular you want to get. So uh, does that help, Sarah? That's a really, really good question. let's see. Okay, good. I'm glad. All right. So I hope this has been helpful. Like I said, let me put this up on the screen again. You can get um, a PDF of these plot points, but at, at this uh, URL here, it's bit.ly forward slash 10 plot points. But keep in mind, it will say nine essential plot points because I used to have them as nine and I've since separated two of them. So pretty much exactly the same thing, except that I write them on two separate lines instead of one. That's all. (laughs) All right. So I'll leave that up for a minute. And let's, um, let's go back to these six habits. We're almost done here. We're going to get ready to wrap up. But these six habits uh, that we talked about yesterday, and I just want to go through how they would apply to the actual writing of your book. Yesterday, I was applying them to your overall success as an author and an entrepreneur, Um, today I'm going to apply them specifically to writing your book, okay? So, we have seeking clarity. You need to have clarity on who your characters are, on what their arc is, so the internal character arc and the external arc. Now, what I just went through with the 10 plot points is the external arc, okay? You also have to have clarity on your world and on where the story is going, Um, all of that stuff that I've talked about. So, If you want to be successful, you need clarity on these things in order to make a really cohesive story. And this is what I teach. I have all these different templates and processes that helps you go through and plan these things so that what comes out is just automatically an amazing story that people are going to connect with. Okay. Number two, purposely generate creative energy. Guys, this is, this is one of the ways you do it. I mean, we talked yesterday about you know your body and making sure you're healthy so that you have clarity in your mind, but also setting up your workspace and you know creating habits around when you write so that your brain kind of automatically clicks into writing mode. But for writing your story, creating these things in advance is how you purposely generate creative energy, okay? Because you already know what you're going to do, you already have the story in mind. I'll talk about in a minute how there's still plenty of room for pantsing doing this, but <clears throat> this automatically creates that creative energy that you need to get your story written. Be comfortable with high stakes. The biggest thing here, um, there is what I talked about yesterday about, you know, not being indecisive, just picking something and writing toward it. So that's partly true here too, with getting it written, getting it, you know, planned out and everything. Um, But also make your character's stakes really high. And I didn't go into this too much, but, um, you know, I'm all about epic stories. If you can come up well, let's put it this way. One problem that a lot of people have with using these kinds of templates is that they're afraid that you're going to end up writing to a cliche. What does that mean? It means that you look at the template and the first thing that comes to mind, you go, oh yeah, that'll work. I'll do that. But the problem with that is that usually the first thing you come up with is not the best thing. Okay. I would encourage you to come up with 10 or 15 different ideas for each um, plot point And the one that is the most crazy one you can get away with and still adhere to your story, do that one, okay? You want it to be epic. You want it to be, you know, when readers say they want twists and turns, they don't necessarily mean that they want you to go off the rails and away from this template, but they do like things that surprise them. So find the most surprising way to fulfill the plot points, right? That's how you become comfortable with high stakes. And even, you know, you might find that if you, let's say early on, you're looking for an escalation and the craziest one you can come up with Changes the trajectory of your story. Well, you know, if it's changing it so much that you don't want to use that, okay, that's that's up to you. You're the writer. But sometimes that can make your story better, and it can take you in directions you never thought of. Okay, so brainstorming ideas for these templates can actually um, enhance your creativity and make your story way better than you originally planned for it to be. Okay, doesn't happen all the time, but it can happen. So just be comfortable with those high stakes. Don't be afraid of them. Um, you know, really let them play out and see where it takes you. And that's how you're gonna write even better stories than even you would've come up with originally. Um, put productive processes into play. These are the productive processes, guys. <laughs> These will help you write your story so much more efficiently. You're gonna get through it faster, but remember how I talked about how people think that if you write a story quickly, it means that it's low quality? This will help you write your story quickly, but the quality, aside from you know basic line editing, comes from the fact that you're using this template, okay? A low quality story in most people's minds, what they're talking about is the kind of story they can't connect with because it's just a character running around doing stuff and there's no focus to it. There's no cohesiveness, nothing like that. And so the character's going, or I mean, excuse me, the reader's going, this is a really low quality story. But this takes a story that you already have in mind, it makes it high quality so that you've hit every single point that will make it connect with the reader and make it high quality and streamlines it. Okay. So this is a productive process that's going to help you um, plan faster, write faster and make your, your business more predictable. You know, especially from a monetary standpoint, you'll have a better idea of how quickly you can get a book written. Um, of course you still need to edit and make sure that it's well edited and all of that, but you see what I mean. This is how you write your books more quickly, but don't have to worry about them being low quality. Um, influence intentionally. Let me move, remove this banner. So same thing. Um, we talked about how, We want to change the world with our stories by seeing characters transform, by transforming your reader vicariously through that character. This is how you're influencing intentionally. Okay, people like to see change. They like to see people overcoming and you will influence them with that story. If you put that in, if you don't put that in, your stories may still be good. They may still have good things to say about it. You know, I'm not saying that anyone who's not used this has never had any success. Yeah, they've had some but you're not truly influencing them on an emotional level that will keep them coming back to your stories over and over and over again. Okay. Intentionally influencing is by using the human template to transform your reader. That's how you do that. And demonstrating courage just means, um, same thing as before, take action, don't get hung up on writer's block, don't get hung up on indecision, just take action, write your story, even if you're not positive that that it's the best it could be, you'll figure it out as you go, and that's actually where a lot of the pansing comes in, okay? So, any questions about that? Sorry, I have something that keeps falling over right here. All right. So, finally, I keep promising that I will um, talk about plotting and pantsing. Okay, I already talked about this. Sorry. I should have changed the slide. This is how you write more high-quality words in a shorter time by using these templates. Okay. Plotting versus pantsing. So, I don't know which of you, you know, why don't you guys tell me that in the comments? Who is a plotter and who is more of a pantser? Or are you a mix of the two? Lots of people do both. Okay. Yeah, it looks like we have a mixture, which is totally normal. So here's the thing. People who are pantsers, um they, they are the ones that push back against this the most. And the reason is because they feel like the story doesn't come until they start typing on their computer. It starts flowing through their fingers. Now, I'm not saying that's not true or that uh, they're wrong, but what I want you to understand is this. Plotting and pantsing are exactly the same thing. (laughs) I know some of you probably don't believe me, so 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 let me explain. Um, Sure, in one case the outliner we outline everything first, and in the other one we just it comes you know to the pantser as they're writing. So obviously they're different in that respect. But I'm talking about chemical processes in the brain. They are exactly the same thing. It is you coming up with your story you're just using different ways to do that. So my point is that I have found, I have taught a lot of people who claim to be hardcore pantsers and they have become plotters, okay? Um, It's really about relaxing your brain and letting your, your muse come and for pancers, the way they do that is through typing through their fingers. But I, inside the Academy, I can teach you other ways to do that so that you can get the outline done first. Okay. So there are plenty of pancers who become plotters and it's just because they've never been taught the right way to plot before. Okay. It doesn't mean pansy's wrong. And I have no problem with pancers at all. If that is what you love and what you want to do, then I will support you in that. The problem is that it takes a lot longer. Okay. You're going to end up I would use the word waste, but there's going to be a lot of time and a lot of words that go by the wayside that aren't going to end up in your book. And to me, that's because I'm a type A personality that feels like waste. I know not everybody sees it that way and that's fine. Um, so keep in mind that even if you're a cancer, I promise I can teach you to do this. It's just about changing your mindset a little bit. And mostly it's about the same thing we talked about yesterday, relaxing your brain and letting your creative muse come. And I can teach you how to do that. Um, also keep in mind that even with outlining, I used to consider myself a really hardcore plotter and I still am, but I I didn't think that I pantsed at all. And then as I've kind of learned a little bit more about myself, I realized I pants a lot of stuff. Unless you're going to write every single thing in your book and your outline, in which case that's not the outline, that's the book. You're pantsing a lot of it. Okay. You're pantsing, um, how you're getting from point A to point B through the different plot points. You're pantsing, the exact words you're using to describe each scene. You're panting conversations. Um, You know what I mean? All those kinds of things. And panting really ends up coming into it in a big way because for me, I don't plan, I don't outline, for the most part, my themes. Every once in a while, I'll have one that I know I want to get in there. But for the most part, my themes come to me in the writing. They come through inspiration. And that means they come through panting. When I'm just writing a scene, something will occur to me and it'll be like a sort of a light bulb moment, I'll be like, ah, that's, that's good. There's a theme for this book, you know, and I'll write it down and then I'll go back and reincorporate it in earlier chapters. Um, but the point is we do a lot of pantsing, And so the whole, which is better pantsing or plotting, it's really kind of a ridiculous argument guys, because everybody does both. It's a continuum of which one you do more. And then there's the fact that once again, like I said, it is the exact same process in the brain. All it is, is letting your creativity flow so you can get your story down. Outliners do it with an outline. Pantsers do it with a keyboard. But I can teach you, if you're a pantser, to do it more quickly, whether it's, you know, with an outline or just in a general way that's more quickly. Um, The other thing is that um, there are some really famous pantsers out there. Uh, Stephen King is one of them. He never, ever outlines. He never writes anything down. But, But if you were to go through any and all of Stephen King's books, I promise all of the plot points are there. Okay, I've done it before, not with all of his books, but with quite a few of them, Um, he does adhere to this outline. So my point is, even if you're a pantser rather than an outliner, you're still following this, okay? because it's what makes a good story. In Stephen King's case, it's just that he keeps it in his head. He knows what makes a good story, and, and maybe it's even subconscious rather than conscious, but he just knows what needs to happen next, the kinds of twists and turns he needs to have in order to keep the reader being pulled through the story and hit that human template. Okay. So all I'm saying is that if you're a pantser thinking, well, I don't want to do this because it's too um, restrictive or whatever, um, all of the writers out there who are successful storytellers, even if they're pantsers, they still adhere to this outline. All I'm doing is giving it to you in a way that is um, conscious so that you're aware of it consciously. And like I said, if it's just a matter of the story doesn't really come to me unless I'm typing, I can help with that. Okay. If that's something that you want, but you know, you could be a pantser too, who decides that no matter what, this is just the way I write. This is the way I love to write. And I'm going to do it this way. That's fine. If that's what you want to do, it's probably going to take you a lot longer to write your story first, but then you can also use the outlines as checks and balances to make sure you haven't missed anything, um, to make sure that, you know, there's not a part of your story that stalls out. And that's another thing to know too. If you are getting feedback on your story, you know, um, workshopping it with uh, critique partners or giving it to beta readers and they tell you that a scene or a part of the story feels a little boring or lost their interest, don't take that as an insult. Go back to the template and realize you're probably missing a plot point. Okay, there's something there that didn't hold their attention, so you need to move more quickly through something or, you know, throw in an escalation somewhere. And using this, it's really easy to fix the problems in your story. Okay, so that's another thing that it's really great for. All right, so um, even if you're a panzer, I hope that this will uh, have at least some value to you because it really can make your stories better, no matter what you use it for or how you approach it. Okay. All right. So any questions or comments about that? Oh, let's see. Sarah says, good point. My plotting involves bullet points for story. And then I pants. Yes, very true. That's what I do too. I do fill out all of my outlines, but then after that I start typing and obviously I'm not filling out every single detail of the story. So the rest of that is pants. Um, all right. So we are coming up on 90 minutes. We need to wrap up. So the homework for today, do the nine plot points for either a current work in progress or your favorite book or film and put it in the group. And the reason I say that is if you don't have a work in progress or you uh, don't feel comfortable sharing that in the group, just pick your favorite film and write out the, oh, I I guess I did call it nine, the nine or 10 plot points and put it in the group. And I would like you to read through what other people put in there, um, because I want you to get really, really good at recognizing this for various stories. Okay. Like I said yesterday, I want you to become an expert in story psychology and how human beings absorb story. And you'll start to see it everywhere. And when you start to see it, that will start to influence your writing in a good way. It'll start to give you inspiration for your own stories. Okay. And, um, There will be another gift card tomorrow for um, random drawing for whoever does the homework, okay? Um, Sarah, I don't know if you were here, but you won today. So uh, go ahead and email me at lkhillbooks.com and I'll get that to you, there's my email. All right, if people don't have any other questions or comments, that is what I have for you today. Feel free to post any questions or comments you come up with in the group, either on this post or in another post and I will try to get around to answering them. And yeah, I hope that this helps you write. I hope you um, go back to whatever you're working on now, your work in progress, and just kind of check this out to see what points you have, what points you don't. And keep in mind, you may have a lot of them because you are already a writer and you naturally have some idea about what it takes to tell a story. You might find that you actually have a lot of these and that's a good thing. That's just proof that you're a natural storyteller. Um, But if you don't, then you could incorporate them and make your story that much better, okay? Okay. All right, well, everyone have a wonderful day. And remember that we are off tomorrow, but um, I will see you on Thursday where we will talk about the third pillar of our author success, which is everybody's favorite topic, marketing. All right, have a great, great day, guys. See you then. Me again, before you go, if you found value in this episode, I would love it if you could leave me a review. Reviews are the best way to show your appreciation and help others find this podcast. Be sure to screenshot it, share it on your favorite social media network, and tag me at LK Hill Books. Remember, the world needs your stories. Only you can change someone's heart with your fire breathing dragons, your mind blowing mysteries, your epic romances, and your intense thrillers. So join the revolution and be a prolific author.